Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. And this weekend, we're talking about lazy genre stomping. Just because something's from the 90s doesn't mean it's bad. So Rob, this is a topic very near and dear to my heart, uh, especially this week, especially because a game called Ukulele came out. And it was a, we talked about it a little bit on the show. It is a 3D platformer, very much a spiritual successor to the Banjo-Kazooie games sort of of the late 90s, early 2000s on the N64. And so many of the reviews, which are pretty negative, uh, I I think it has a lot of problems. I don't think it's a very good game, personally. Um, But I don't think it's a very good game because it falls flat in the ways that those older games actually did really interesting things with level design, with sort of quest design with how they had secrets kind of everywhere. And a lot of people, I'm seeing this kind of all over the place in a lot of reviews and videos and so on and so forth, is this attitude that, well, you know, those old games weren't really that good anyway. They were kind of shitty. Like this attitude where it's just like, oh, you know, this thing from the 90s just kind of sucked. So whatever, I guess this isn't really that much worse than that thing. And let me tell you, Rob and World, that really pisses me off. That is just like such a shitty attitude just because something is old, just because something is maybe like a little, you know, from 20 years ago and maybe if you played it right now, you'd, you'd kind of look at it and be like, oh, it doesn't look as beautiful. Those textures are muddied that it deserves to be like pooped on and just sort of left in the, you know, in the sludge. Like, Okay, we're not ugh. talking about your fear of aging right now. We're, we're just talking about games. No. We're just talking about games. Okay, great. Great. Just, My just argument, wanted to be sure. Yeah, no. We're <laughs> we're talking about a very specific thing here. Just something's from the nineties. <laughs> and it's starting to be the a little 90s. over the hill. You know, uh, I'm from the eighties, Rob. I don't know. Uh, no, but I think we, we, we were we're we're born in the we're born in the eighties. Nineties kids. kids. Yeah, for sure. Uh so there's a there's a lot going on here. Uh that because for me, there were only a couple 3D platformers. That entire genre kind of hits at a weird point for me, right? Okay. That's a yeah. genre that didn't, I don't think, existed too much on PC. And that's where I was like, those things arrive with like the N64 and, and that whole generation, right? Rough, roughly in there. PS1, N64, um, those subsequent console, consoles. Yeah. And... I don't think they made a ton of inroads on the PC platformers at that time. There weren't a ton of them on the PC. Um, And what's interesting to me is that it does sort of seem like they became this weird artifact of that place and time. Uh, When, when, when platformers began making their research, their, the resurgence via uh, the indie boom, it was all, 2D platformers, Completely. by and large. Yeah, yeah. And there was a ton of nostalgia around them and affection for them. And it kind of feels like, for whatever reason, that genre didn't get a whole lot of like nostalgic love. There haven't been a whole lot of a whole lot of reinventions. Yeah. And it sort of seems like what a lot of people are saying with ukulele is this is absolutely a faithful. Uh, love letter to that genre and the sh- and the reason it sucks is because the whole genre sucked yeah and so God. i'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of interested in this i'm like i'm kind of wondering is it a weird case 
where people have vague memories of something and then a counterfeit comes along and immediately they sort of overwrite those vague memories with the counterfeit and then sort of apply their the counterfeit back to their original objects. That makes sense. Yes. Like it's this weird, like it's this weird second order uh, recollection. Absolutely. And I, I definitely think that's happening here. And this is a very weird case where there have been so few games of this genre that that's part of it. And also the fact that this looks like, like it looks good. You know, it's, it's a pretty game. It's, it doesn't fall on its face in the most obvious ways. Like it, it, it doesn't like control like shit. I don't think it controls particularly well, but it doesn't, it doesn't like completely fall apart. You know, when you start playing it, like it just feels flat. Like it, I think its failure is completely in its level design and its quest design. Like I think the things that make a 3D platformer good are really good, really interesting level design that encourages you to explore and actually sort of rewards you for exploring. Exploring is the fun thing, not the reward you get at the end. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to dive in a little bit deep here because I am uh, you know, I've played these games very recently. When Rare Replay came out a couple of years ago, I played through 100% of Banjo-Kazooie all the way through again. And I played through a whole bunch of Banjo-Tooie again. That was its sequel. I played Conker's Bad Fur Day again. I, you know, I, I played Super Mario 64 again at the same time. Because it actually weirdly came out uh, on the Wii U, on the sort of eShop, like around the same time, like that summer. So we're talking about like two years ago. I was a grown-up. I was not 14 years old anymore, you know, as I was in like the late 90s. Uh, and I was evaluating those games again as like, yeah, somebody who is knows a little bit more about game design and knows a little bit more about games. And the best of that genre holds up fucking beautifully today. And they do so because they have incredible, rich, vertical, chock full of secrets level design. Like there's there's a level called Freeze Easy Peak in Banjo-Kazooie, okay? And it has a giant snowman that you can climb. It has all these little secrets. It has all these little caves. It has all these little areas where different things are happening. There's different quests. There's different things you can do. There's different ways of moving that are fun. You can fly in that level. You can swim. You get hurt from swimming, but whatever. You can change into this other little animal and kind of the movement changes because of that. You learn a, a new little move in that level. There's all these other different ways of moving around in that level, and it is fun to move around in that level. It is fun to find all those little secrets, to explore all the little nooks and crannies. It is, it is like, joyous to do. In Ukulele, from what I've played, and I've only played a couple of hours of it, I do need to, you know, actually spend a little bit more time in it. But from what I've played, that game feels flat. It feels like, here is a whole bunch of polygons that we made look very nice, and here's a whole bunch of middling activities that you can do. You can go over here to this middling activity. You can go over here to this middling activity. You can go over here to this other thing. None of them are particularly fun or interesting, but they're all here. We checked off the boxes of like a Banjo-Kazooie game where it's like, okay, colorful shit. Uh, you know, there's some jumping you know, <laughs> there are moves that you learn and, and you can move in different ways. And uh, okay, and you can collect a bunch of shit. That's it. It just checks the boxes without actually understanding what made those games fun and what made them good and what made them interesting and what makes them hold up 
today. If you actually went back and played, especially the sort of HD versions that are in Rare Replay or, or something like that, or, you know, Super Mario 64 still plays fucking beautifully. Uh, that game is more than, God, it was 96, I think. Uh, so, like, that game's more than 20 years old. It still plays gorgeously and beautifully. Yeah, the camera's a little shitty. It's not perfect, but, like, it still feels so good to move in those worlds. Uh, and ukulele does not feel good to move in. It It's boring and flat, and the stuff you do is not interesting. What do you think are the games that account for this confirmation bias, where people play ukulele and yeah. immediately say, well, you know, really none of those games were all that good. Like, is it people... Because I kind of wonder how many people really played all that many rare games? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Like, there's... Like, people know. Or if they played them recently. Like, that's the thing. Oh, maybe they played it 20 years ago and then never picked it up again and think, like, eh, whatever. Like, don't actually know what they're fucking talking about. <laughs> Sorry. I'm getting heated on this uh, episode here. Yeah, you, you were gonna, you're, you're going to have some awkward conversations with your friends from uh, Kotaku's all around the world. Uh, you know, really. all the Kotaku's. Yeah. You know. Um, but what do you think poisoned the well for the, the sort of 3D platformer? Like... Is it games like, I mean, was, was does Castlevania 64 uh, sort of count in, in this case? <laughs> like, like, what is, like, why is it that with the exception of uh, Nintendo, Mario 64 and maybe mm -hmm. some grudging uh, acceptance of some of the rare games? I don't know a lot of people <laughs> who are in all of them. Um, yeah. Well, Donkey Kong 64 was pretty shitty. Uh, okay. It's the it's kind of the one that really sticks out. A lot of people have uh, really spotty memories when it comes to this stuff because people will talk about oh the collectathons, the collectathons. Donkey Kong sixty four was the only one that actually used that as like its core design philosophy because it really did have a hundred things to collect for each character in it, of five characters like in each world. Like it really did do that, but none of the other games did that. Like the other games had a lot of stuff, but it was always like oh, you know, you collect notes because it's going to show you this other path. Or, oh, if you go in this little nook and cranny or, like, this little weird patch of water under this bridge, then you'll find something. But it's not like, oh, I had to do that because I had to 100% the game or, or some stupid thing. Like, it, yeah, Conquer's Bad Fur Day is, like, maybe the best example of this. Like, that game had almost no collectibles whatsoever. It was very much inspired by adventure game puzzle design. Like, it was quest design, really. Like, you happen to be doing the puzzles by jumping and sort of using these context clues and, you know, beating bosses and things like that, but you almost never were collecting anything. There was money in that game, and it was like, oh, you got money for doing this sort of major quest line that took an hour or something. Uh, so there's a whole lot of people being like, well, it's a collect -em up just like all those rare games, and it's like, dude... Did you, did you play these games? Like, did you, did you know why things were collectible? Or are you just thinking of Donkey Kong? Like, That's an interesting... Do you think the whole... The whole 3D platform... The platformer part of the genre is kind of where things go off the rails? Like, because when I, like, when I think of the genre, it's not a genre I played a lot of. Mm -hmm. I definitely think, well, they aren't adventure games. They're not, they're not about, like, doing quests. They're not about solving puzzles. They're about... Hop, they're, they're about jumping puzzles. They're about hopping from from one ledge to the next. There, there was an entire genre uh, filled with um, like meat circus and uh, oh god, what's the level <laughs> from uh, the other level of Psychonauts? The uh, 
Mm. Uh, which which one? Because I the know the paranoid guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the suburbia. Oh thing. my yes, god. Yes, yes, yes. Where, where it's just like the milkman. The milkman milk, conspiracy. Oh my god. Uh, yeah. Great, like great, brilliantly conceived level. Uh, yeah. Just a nightmare to navigate. I still, I still get angry uh, thinking thinking <laughs> about that. But I wonder, like. It's weird. Psycho- Psychonauts almost gets like seem to get a pass because it's Tim Schafer, and everyone knows the Tim Schafer games don't really neatly slot into uh, genre definitions right. a, a, a lot of times. Uh, so it's sort of like the uh, you know the re- he's the reverse no tier Scotsman. Uh, well, his yeah, his yeah. game isn't really one of those games, which which that, is debatable. Yeah. but like I don't know. For me, from the outside, it just sort of seemed like that entire genre got written off as. Being in this sort of valley between two, being in this being in this valley uh, between two eras of gaming, mm-hmm. where you're starting to see like within about five, six, maybe ten years of these games, everything be moved over to the types of games that existed on PC. In this era, right? right? That like, uh, if <laughs> yeah. you could make a three D third person action game, it was going to be an Assassin's Creed type of thing. It was going to yeah. be, you know, you, so you're not going to have a platformer. Uh, if you can make a uh, sort of quest driven uh, puzzly game, that's going to be sort of a that's going to be some, some kind of RPG. And then the yeah. platformer is going to get stripped down, and the three D is going to be thrown aside, and it's going to go back to being what it always should have been, which is you know two D. Uh, that kind of that kind of design ethos, and so it makes me so mad, Rob. But the, yes, go on. From the outside, that <laughs> kind of seems like like what happened, where yeah. the genre has a reputation of being compromised. Uh, yeah. It's sort of a, a, a an evolutionary misstep that w- yeah, was quickly it, it does. Out. It does, and there were plenty of shitty 3D platformers. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to sit here and be like, the greatest genre of all time. There was never anything bad in it. I'm just talking about, like, people are taking these genuinely awesome examples of the genre. Like, classics that play very well, are interesting, have have all this, like, really interesting sort of design background that took from different genres. And, like, they're just like, the genres suck because this game that was excellent was actually shitty. Like, it just it's so shitty and reductive. Like, there were, you know, there was, like, the Gex Enter the Gecko, like, Gex 2, Gex 3. Those were, like, middling games that weren't amazing. They weren't bad by any means. But, like, I think that's what people actually are remembering when they're talking about ukulele. They're like, oh, yeah, this is exactly, you know, just like that. You know, that when... And I actually think ukulele is more poorly designed than than gex which i would call like a six out of ten kind of platformer like uh you know like it still had some pretty decent movement it still felt fun to move in it still had some at least decent level design i i i really take umbrage with ukulele's level design I, I I enjoy the degree to which you were like a connoisseur of like it's like being a connoisseur of like black licorice or something it really is it's like no no that's not the good stuff uh, but well, people are, are so dismissive of it, and it's like, dude, you are pooping on a, a fantastic experience. And you know what I think a big part of it is, too, is like a lot of backlash against the like very cutesy, colorful, like twee, you know, complete. Like, I admit, like, some of the aesthetics of Banjo Kazooie are like 
pretty, you know, pretty fucking goofy. Like everything has googly eyes and it talks like, like it does. That That is totally the aesthetic they were going for. And ukulele does it as well. And I think that's another part of why people are like, oh yeah, this sure is Banjo-Kazooie. And it's like, yeah, if you took out the parts that were good, this would be Banjo-Kazooie. But like, it, yeah. I think people have like a real hard time with things that are like earnest and goofy and, and you know, twee in a way that's not cool. Like there's cool twee, you know, there's hipster twee, but then there's like this goofy thing from the 90s that was It's weird. I kind of instinctively like feel I know what you mean, but at the same time trying to think like, what is cool twee? Um, Like, you know, cool twee is is the, hmm, the neo-endearment crew. You know what I mean? If I talk about that sort of thing, like that's kind of cool twee. And I'm not shitting on that. I like a lot of that stuff. That's not me being like, oh, cool twee versus like, Goofy, awkward, okay. So like, stuff. cool. Like, so in a way, like, um, life is strange. Characters, or yeah, yeah. Like, like a life is strange is a little bit cool. Twee, I would say for sure. Mm, I don't know if I would. Mm, I haven't played enough of it. I, I mean, it's awkward in some ways, but I'm not sure that I would define it that way. I had a great example a second ago, though. Like, uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, it's gone. It's okay. It's I, like we, I, I think we know what we're talking about here. But if if we Undertale? need a definition, yes, very, very Undertale. That's cool, Twee. Like it's cute and it's like a little bit ironic. It's not necessarily like sarcastic or sardonic or anything like that. But it's like it knows it's cute. You know, it's kind of out in its little tank Whereas, top like, and saying ukulele like, I know I'm is cute. a child's bedroom filled with uh, beanie babies. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No. I... Yeah, there's 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 an other interesting discussion there about like what aesthetics are allowed to be cool and, and right. what art and and maybe the lingering uh the lingering effects of the the gritty wave like what you know what I mean like what what is still yeah. allowed to be considered like stylish versus garbage. Yeah, and this is where talking about something like Conqueror's Bad Fur Day is a little weird because the sense of humor of that game does not. Well, at a, all hold up. It, it, it's like really, it's a, really it's dumb jokes. Dark What's game up? too, isn't it? It is. Like, it's, it it's, is. It's, like by the end, you're basically playing a dark tragedy. You are like, and, and it's like there are parts that I still think are are somewhat amusing, but like it's a lot of poop jokes and like a lot of like. All right, fine. it's sort of meet you the, know what? Meet the you feebles, know what? The right? main what poop if, joke this? is fine. Yeah. I actually think the poop boss is a little bit funny. You can shoot me later, but there's like a lot of like, oh, making fun of like Southerners, or there's like a, a definitely like a really stupid gay joke and like yes, things like that that are like, okay, like this was edgelord humor in 2001, right? Yeah. That does not hold up, but the, the core design of the game and the way it's structured does and is way more interesting than folks usually give it credit for so this is completely off topic uh but you talking about sort of adventure platformers and things with puzzles and yeah got me thinking about one of my favorite platformers of all time that just like doesn't seem to have had any kind of meaningful successor uh do you remember flashback oh god i remember flashback and there was a horrifying like reboot of it there like, was six years ago that was so fucking broken yeah. i reviewed that at polygon like 
not yeah, six I, years ago. It was probably like four years ago. I would. I was uh, briefly excited, then. and then I was just, I was just gutted. Uh, the flashback was amazing. The first flashback was amazing. God, it was so Blade Runner platformer. Yeah, uh, it was, it was, it was great, and you're... it was so atmospheric, and oh god, yeah, I lo- that is so my jam, and like a lot of those rare games were taking. At least you can see like a a line, right? Like Banjo-Kazooie is a pretty pure platformer that just as you go through the game, it starts to get more and more adventure gamey. Like the entire last world in that game, the last level in that game is the same structure. It's like a giant tree and like some wooded area that you have divided into four seasons and you have to do things in one season to get things in other seasons. Like it's it's completely adventure game puzzle design. And Banjo-Tooie, which came out two years later, uh, was so completely influenced by that. Like the, the different worlds all had these interconnections and you had to do something in one world to make something else happen in another world. And this stuff was always like, you never had to hundred percent these games. You, it was like, it, did you find this cool use of this thing? There was like a, a, a theme park world where there was like a burger stand and a fry stand and there were some hungry people in like the dinosaur world. And like, it was like, oh, I found food somewhere. Oh, yeah, it was back there. And and there were all these little puzzles and all these little things that were very, very clearly like, oh, yeah, that's very like, that's pretty much like a scum kind of game. Like, that's the kind of logic that goes into designing these kinds of puzzles. Uh, and I, I loved that stuff. I ate it up because it was also like fun to run and jump and swim and fly and whatever else. But like, they had these little, you know, these little logic puzzles that made these worlds feel very interesting and kind of vibrant in a way and like man i just oh god i wish people would uh i wish people would go back and play some of these games and like i don't know i mean it's got to be old it gets old being the only person like passionately invested in in a lot of them like i I mean like the joke the joke with you right is like Just wait until Danielle brings up Donkey Kong Country. Right, exactly. Like just, just wait. Just for wait. It. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I, I, I kind of get it, uh, especially because you end up with this, like, you know for a fact that like there was this interesting path that gained, like, that could have been explored further, but yeah. it became uncool for whatever reason and yeah. is gone. Like my my nineties, like if we're if we're going to sort of wage our personal vendettas uh this episode oh, please please do please do uh let's talk about kane and lynch no we're not gonna talk about kane and lynch. <laughs> uh we're, we're gonna talk about fmb games hell yeah we are because i feel like sometimes they've become like a lot of them are deservedly jokes Absolutely, one hundred percent. Even some of the good ones. A lot of three D platformers sucked. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's what that's what's going to happen when there's like a wave, right? Like, you know, in in five years or so, people are going to remember the the wave of garbage tactics games uh, that that followed (laughs) on the heels of of XCOM. Uh, It's just it's it's the way these things work. Uh, FMV games, I feel come in for a lot of there's there's a lot of they become kind of a joke right it's like oh that in the 90s everyone was making fmv games what a disastrous idea and a lot of them were indeed very bad but that's 
kind of like you're lumping all games from an era into one bag and right. characterizing them by their worst examples. You could do that for literally anything. If you say like, you know, if if you're go- it's like saying 2000 shooters. Boy, 2000 shooters, huh? Can you believe people bought things like Sin episodes? <laughs> right, <laughs> what a bunch right. of losers. It's like, of course. Of course it looks of course that's idiotic. Uh but that's that's not the that's not all that was happening there and it kind of bugs me that it almost feels like if I'm going to discuss some of my favorite like adventure games of that time, the first thing I've got to do is defend them against the same criticisms again yeah, and again. Like, God. look, I know a lot of the acting in the Tex Murphy games isn't great. Sure. Uh, I sure know a lot of those backgrounds don't really look <laughs> all that good uh, or that convincing. But at the same time, like, there was something really cool about, like, being Tex Murphy in the Pandora Directive and just sort of, like, touring all these locations and, you know, hearing what he was going to say. But also, like, you'd have this cast used from game to game and you sort of got invested in these characters and their performances. And it was evocative in a way yeah. that a lot of a lot of contemporary games were not able to be uh i i feel like the same thing happened like i don't know how you make uh gabriel knight 2 the beast within without some of those without those clips right without without yeah. the w- without the weird relationship you develop with an avatar who is then also being acted uh in these in these little interstitial cutscenes. Uh, frequently by a slightly awkward uh, and, you know, sorry to say, second-rate actor, maybe third-rate. Uh, the only <laughs> thing, the only thing I've ever seen uh, FMV Gabriel Knight in, yeah, is an episode of Frasier, <laughs> in which he is. Uh, I want to say he is a barista. At nice. Cafe Nervosa, and I think Roz might be flirting with him, but that's it. Nice. That, so nice. it's like, oh, it's Gabriel Knight, and that's and that is the only other thing I've ever seen him in. But <laughs> I don't know. It's there were there were a lot of bad FMV games, like your like American Laser Games probably did enough to stink up the entire <laughs> stink up the entire concept. <laughs> but at the same time, like you know, in adventure games or in Wing Commander Three. Uh, the the FMV stuff goes a long way to humanizing and deepening characters who otherwise had always been. Um, yeah, this yeah maybe this is it. This is what I'm sort of driving at. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so a lot of the characters that really work best in these FMV games are characters you met earlier in different games made with like made made without little movies right yeah yeah and in a lot of those games the characters were a little bit one note or uh archetypical yeah yeah totally and once they were able to sort of have actors tackle them they could be a little more expressive a little more nuanced in a way that was tricky to do with sort of animated uh like like in in Wing Commander, for instance, every character I think was basically a frozen pixel portrait, 
with like yeah. animated like lips and eyes. Like that was basically <laughs> sure. it. And, and so like in these games, you're suddenly like having these characters who have these sort of nuanced reactions to things, which you're just not used to uh, in, in games at that point. And nowadays, I don't think you need to do that, right? Like, you, if, you can, if you can get the performances you get in The Last of Us, there is no need to go and make an, F, like an FMV adventure uh, in, in that vein. But for the time, they were pretty cool ways of building, building a relationship character. with a character, yeah. And I would even go so far to say, like, even even in a world with, you know, good animation in The Last of Us, I there's something to the hammy performances in an FMV. Yeah. Like, in an FMV game. You and I are famous for our trash can eclairs. Yes. Like, sometimes that's kind of what you want. What was it, a game that came out, like, two years ago? Was it Contradiction? Uh, I think it's called Contradiction. That was, like, a, you know, very corny, very cheesy but very self-knowingly corny and cheesy, like detective uh, FMV game that was sort of a revival of this genre. And a lot of folks, I didn't, I didn't really get my hands on it much, but I remember it being like very, very well received with the kind of folks who were like, "Hey, you know what? A super pulpy, corny FMV game is that's well made, you know, with interesting puzzles and like it's actually fun to be around, is actually an itch I have to scratch." You know, like it, it it's. There's no need to to only say the the best of something is is you know the only thing we really need to have. Like I I, I love that kind of shit. You love that kind of shit. I think <laughs> too. Yeah. You know, like there's a place for that. There's a place for our trash can eclairs. There's a there's a place for Lost Girl. You know, <laughs> like oh and, man, and just <laughs> you're right, you're right. And th- there's even things that are even tough to reproduce these days, right? Like, do you remember how shitty the uh, tile the the timing was on a lot of scenes in those oh, days? God. Because you had to wait for the CD-ROM to spin up to speed, and and, and you could hear it like yes. like <laughs> did a little noise. A character would say something. There would be a long hitch, like everyone in the scene has just been stricken by like a stroke <laughs> at the exact same moment, and then you're like. Wah. And then sometimes, like, <laughs> yep. and you'd hear like little like. It wasn't just like some like some CD ROMs also made lots of weird like little winching noises. Like you, it wasn't <laughs> sure. just the it wasn't just the RP, the revs. You would hear like it almost sounded like a lens focusing or something. Like that. <laughs> totally, like some machinery in there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so like that's part of the experience for me is a lot of these things like. Uh, God, like Gabriel Knight is talking to a German detective and asks him a question. And then, oh, this is the part where the CD-ROM joined the scene for like 10 seconds while, uh, while, while, it, tried to, while it tried to serve up the next bit of dialogue. Um, yeah. And it is funny when people try to recapture that. Hmm. And maybe this is where it comes full circle. Yeah. And then people try to recapture it. And they're like, oh, we're going to write a little love letter to these old games and all their weirdness and goofiness. And that's when you get Red Alert 3. Oh, boy. And now, Red Alert 3 did give us one gift. It gave us one gift, and that was Tim Curry. Tim Curry. I mean, Tim Curry, (laughs) always a gift. But Tim Curry trying to get through that line about going into space. (laughs) <laughs> to go to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. 
that one line, like, okay, you kind of justified the existence of that game. Congratulations, yeah. I'm happy. But the rest of that game, I think, is, is pretty atrocious. Uh, I don't like it as an RTS. Um, I hate its style. And then it serves up cutscene after cutscene of just rancid trash that is is trying really hard uh, to be rancid trash. It's yeah. it's it's mocking what it's attempting to evoke, and that's and that's a that's a tricky thing. It's like. Why is Galaxy Quest such a good movie? Right. Why does Galaxy Quest leave you enjoying Star Trek more? I don't like it's a tough thing to pin down, but it's it's the difference between like um like affectionate knowing parody mm-hmm. and just like I don't know, mean spirited mockery. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a it you know, sometimes that distinction can get a little weird, but it's a very, very important one. I'm looking now at the page for contradiction. Uh, Spot the liar. That's the name of this, and it, it, oh, it's like right. overwhelmingly positive on Steam, and it's very cheesy. Like I'm looking at the screenshots. I'm looking at the video. This is like a cheesy as fuck, you know, FMV homage. And this is from two years ago, and it's you know, it's like a goofy cop, and you're you know, you're doing all the things you would do in, in an older FMV game. It's very much an FMV game, but. From what I'm like reading here, and and I only brought this up because I remember Justin McElroy at Polygon loved it and like said like it's corny, it's cheesy, it's hammy, but like if you're in the mood for a corn cheese and ham sandwich, like nothing'll beat it. <laughs> Basically, yeah. like and like it it just does those things well. It does it, you know, in that sort of loving way, right? Like this game and games like it, I think, understand what was actually good and what was actually, you know, a a fun thing, even if it wasn't, you know, the most technologically advanced thing, but like, hey, was this like an actual fun element? Did this contribute to your enjoyment of it? Then we leave it in. If it's something that like totally sucks, maybe we'll make a joke about it, but we're not going to like, you know, frustrate you with it. And that's a, that's, it's a really hard thing to get right. The loving homage uh, versus the like, eh, whatever. It'll be bad because it's funny, you know, like that, yeah. the, like lazy kind of like, it's funny because it's bad. Like, no, no, it's not funny because it's bad. Sometimes things are funny because they're bad, but it's not because somebody tried to make it bad because they thought that would be funny. That's not how it works, my friend. There's a weird... Hypothetical person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's an entire conversation we had here about like the role of earnestness in yes. something. Like sometimes it's excruciating, like... I mean, you can get it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, but it's, it's a weird thing. Like the room is incredibly earnest. (laughs) Right. And it is, it is enjoyable. And yet I find something almost repulsive about its earnestness. Sure. Sure. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a lot to unpack. It's, it's, it's another conversation. Uh, that's, That's definitely a topic we'll have to do one day. But like that—that's part of this. It's, at least when we're talking about FMV, for sure, it's definitely part of this conversation. God. Yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I will never forgive Red Alert Three though for for both. Like, you know, you make something that's intentionally parodying uh, FMV games from that era, and just like playing in all the worst stereotypes, and then it's. It, yeah, it did have this effect of, in retrospect, maybe none of these things were were ever cool or good, and, and damn it, they were. That dude, yeah, playing, they were. The dude playing Kane, 
in the first <laughs> Command and Conquer, like, yeah, he brought that, like, he brought that character and that that mediocre script to life because on some level he you know he cared god damn right and That's everyone red alert 3 right. is just like checking a box and taking yeah, no. a paycheck fuck that fuck that you yeah. know i i uh give me give me somebody who who hey maybe they weren't perfect but they they laid it all on the line give me that any day you know it doesn't always work but but let me see it that's what I'd like to see. Anyway, cynical people who think things just because they're old or just because maybe it's not fashionable anymore, that they're bad and shitty and crappy and you're relying on old ass memories of when you're eight years old and playing a thing and now you think, ooh, maybe it sucked. Hey, maybe go, hey, here's some advice. Here's some advice for you. Go back with an open heart and an open mind Play the thing, or maybe just go watch a fucking Let's Crit or something with somebody who, like, actually wanted to take a minute and look at the elements that worked. And, of course, and elements that didn't work, but but look at what actually was special about something old before you go taking a greasy poop on it. That's my advice. That's my advice. Anyway, we can't wait to have you back on the show, Heather. No, this is not Heather's fault. No, Heather, and, and Heather, Heather actually from Kotaku made a, a very good video that just happened to be maybe a little dismissive of this. I am much more mad about other things that I, I've read on the internet and conversations I've had with people <laughs> on the internet since then. I I liked Heather's video. I just think maybe little dismissive <laughs> of the older games, but like not all the way. No, that is, this is not the person who I'm... No. Speaking about when Danielle I talk about a Danielle has been on the poop. internet, and that's always, like, we should just log off. <laughs> yeah, basically. You should not be on the internet. Oh, the internet. And that's Ugh. why we don't yes. do the internet. We, do, we don't have emails. We have weekend correspondence. That's right. We have letters. We have beautiful letters. For we are people of letters. Uh, Danielle, why don't you take us into the uh, first letter here? <sighs> that sounds great. So this one comes from Drew in San Francisco. And uh, Drew writes... For the past week now, Mass Effect Andromeda has been taking a beating online for my- for a myriad of different reasons. I think you want to say myriad different reasons, but whatever. I'm sorry. That was editorializing. Editor Danielle will go back in her hole now. <clears throat> but I haven't seen one of my more consistent issues with the game brought up. And in fact, it's something that is rarely, uh, rarely mentioned in game criticism, period. Like the previous games in the series... Andromeda takes place in third person, with the player able to see their character, but unlike the original trilogy, your character in Andromeda is portrayed much smaller and takes up far less of the screen. While shifting the perspective further back from the on-screen character does give you a better view of your surroundings, it also makes me feel strangely removed and disconnected from my character in a way I've never really felt before. I admit it's a fairly small complaint that I imagine very few people have with Andromeda, and it is uh, beneficial from a gameplay perspective, since the combat is far more mobile this time around. So having a wider field of vision makes sense. What do you think, uh, why do you think we don't talk about how we view the game world as much when we're constructing criticism? Maybe we do, I'm just reading the wrong critics, but I rarely see people asking uh, the question of how beneficial it is if a game is, for example, in first person or third person, and what effect that has on the player. Thanks for all the great work. Uh, here at Waypoint. Drew, San Francisco. Drew. Drew. I think Drew's onto something. Drew, you're super onto something here. Uh, because perspective means so fucking much to 
what the player experiences, right? Like th- that's the whole entire core of uh, a lot of horror games and why they're in first person. And th- that whole really cool uh, GDC a couple of years ago when Alien Isolation was being prototyped and it was in third person and they showed that little clip of Alien Isolation in third person and it was like, wow, this is cool and all. But this is nowhere near as effective as when they put it into first person. So like there's something there, Drew. I think I think Drew's onto something. Yeah, I think a lot of times the conversation just comes down to how we view the character gets folded into how good is the camera. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think, like, it's easy to talk about uh, the effect of a third-person perspective when your character is maybe, com- like, taking up an uncomfortable portion of the screen. That yeah. can be, like, that. Can, that's very easy to say, like, okay, well, that now it's a problem. But it is a little unusual. It's, it's, it's maybe a little too rare to really interrogate what these different perspectives do for our relationship with a character. And maybe it, maybe that's because a lot of times it is going to come down to, you know, stating the obvious, right? Like, uh, you know, seeing... Uh, you know, seeing Nathan Drake uh, laboring with that in, in Uncharted 2, right? There's that great scene yeah. where you're dragging that wounded camera guy uh, through <laughs> through this war zone. And, like, this guy's bleeding out on you. And, like, it's the first moment in the game where the violence suddenly, like, feels real. Because, like, well, let's face it, a red shirt has kind of <laughs> has taken a bullet. But <laughs> yeah. but he's not a red shirt to Elena, right? Like, right. It's, he, he's a colleague. And so there's the scene where, like, you know, suddenly that you know you're looking at Drake, you know, walking slower and slower, and this other character starting to lean on him harder and harder as he, as he bleeds out, and it introduces this entire element of of like weight to everything, and yeah. you can you can feel uh, the physicality of of the moment, and I think that's something that you know you can only really do that in in a third person game. Uh, but I also think a lot of games maybe don't necessarily do that much that's interesting with it. Like, yeah, I'm not even sure. So it's a game I haven't played much of. Yeah. But Near Automata does yeah. actually do some really cool stuff with the camera. Like genuinely like subjective, like the, ah, oh, God, um, I know Ed Smith actually wrote a piece for us about this recently and about how like expressive the camera is and it's more interested in, like you you certainly can always see your character but the perspective shifting that it does and the sort of dramatic effect it has on you and your playing is actually really cool and interesting and I, I god I need to play more of that game but it's one of those incredibly rare exceptions that proves the rule sort of thing uh with regards to game cameras. Yeah, I need to uh, for a lot of reasons, I need to play that game, but I, I've had a couple people tell me about this camera uh, yeah. that it's it feels directed in a weird yeah. way that is is very unusual. Um, Mass Effect, though, I don't know that I ever did feel all that connected to Shepard from that camera. Like for me, it was the when I think of that game, predominantly what I think of is sort of the two shot conversation. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like that's that's what that game is to me. Um, I don't know. Did you did you feel like forge more of a connection with your shepherd because you were sort of seeing her in every scene, or 
I mean, yeah, to some degree, I, I think. I, I also, like, definitely did the thing where I tried to make her look kind of like me. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and, and pretty much role-played it, like, myself. And, like, oh, the cool, amazing choices I could make if I were in this game. You know, like, doing the role-playing thing a little bit, you know. Uh, so, yeah, like, I get to see her a lot. And, of course, I, I went with a fem shep, so Jennifer Hale's, like, awesome voice acting very much made Shepard for me in a lot of ways. And, like... I th- I do think that's important. I do think like your connection to a character is really important or your lack of connection to a character is really important. It's a really important part of, you know, especially if you're, you're spending, these are long ass games like Andromeda. God, Patricia played it for like 80 hours or maybe more than 80 hours. Like you're spending a lot of time with this character, with this, you know, person in your mind and, and on the screen. So like that is something developers probably should be really cognizant of and you know make things uh work for that character in like really special and sort of handcrafted ways uh so to speak i know that's not really the right term for cinematography handcrafted but i think you know what i mean artisanal yeah artisanal yes there we go uh all right our next letter comes from patrick all right i'm actually writing a question you guys based on an email talked about over on waypoint radio that I'd love to hear your take on. Uh, the crossover has begun. Oh, it has. In particular, the 16-year-old who wrote in about his frustrations on not enjoying The Witcher 3. Oh, this fucking kid. This this oh. was a good letter. No. No, this kid tried. No. The thing. All right. Can I give a little backstory here? Just sure. a little bit. So there's a kid. He was 16. He wrote in saying, like, I played all of The Witcher. He was like, I played the whole thing. He played all the DLC. He played the whole main game. He really tried. He genuinely tried to like The Witcher and, he, and it just didn't click for him. And like this poor boy was like, God, is something wrong with me? Like, yeah. and it was just like, oh, buddy, you you tried. It's not like you just spent five minutes with it. But sorry, that was the backstory. So, yeah. Yeah. And get, kidding aside, like I, that's a lot of game to bite off if you're not enjoying it. Yeah. Uh, but God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> In particular, the 16-year-old who wrote in about his frustrations on not enjoying The Witcher 3. I love The Witcher 3, but it got me thinking, would I have enjoyed it at 16? Hmm. One of the main reasons I'm so fond of Geralt and the other questions in The Witcher 3 is that they are grown-up characters. Geralt feels like he's slowly losing his place in the world as he grows older, and the world changes around him. Even more than this, his relationships with Triss and Yennefer are defined by, how to put this, a baggage that comes from having simply lived. In short, the themes in this game seem more likely to resonate with someone a little further along in life, and that's what works so well about it for me. So my question is, how important is our emotional development to how we experience and relate to games? Have there been times when you liked a game more or less simply because it matched a stage of life you were at? That's such a good question. And I, I mean, I think uh, Patrick is definitely right about The Witcher. I don't... 16-year-old Danielle would have looked at The Witcher and been like, that looks boring. Fantasy? I mean, and, and like, fantasy is already a little bit of a... Bar. It's still a little bit of a bar for me to get over. There's definitely fantasy things I like, but it, it, that aesthetic never appealed to me in the first place. So me taking a look at Geralt, a.k.a. Sex Grandpa, I would have just been like, eh. Sex Grandpa. 
I, mm, I, don't, I don't know. Like, that looks really boring. <laughs> that looks like there's a lot of, like, menus. I didn't even really play RPGs until I was, like, 16. I think my first RPG was Chrono Trigger when I was 16, years after it came come out. Uh, but, you know, I had a boyfriend in high school who introduced me to Chrono Trigger, and then I enjoyed RPGs after that. But, like, I don't, it would have, it would have looked like a boring ass, boring game to me. And the biggest actual thing that I have trouble with in enjoying certain types of games, and this, this applies to some anime as well, I will say this, uh, are games that are really focused on sort of the, the high, the high school experience and like the anxieties of high school. Um, and like Life is Strange worked for me because it was, it was kind of weird enough and kind of had a lot of other things going on that I could kind of get through that. Like it was the exception again, that, that kind of proves like, no, I, I really, high school sucked. It was hellish. I don't ever want to think about it again. And like, if something, some piece of media is capturing that experience, I want it to be critical and not just, Hey, look at high school. High school's cool. Wasn't that nice? Wasn't that fun? I bet you missed that. Um, that's something I have a hard time with for sure. So I'm going to defend the high school setting real quick here. Uh, cause okay, you go I for actually, it. Yeah. So I, but I, I do know I have a number of friends who've, who've shared this issue as well. High school was like, look, most people hate high school on some level. Sure. But there are some people for whom it is a real like chamber of horrors. Like yes. it is, it is four years of like ritual humiliation and social anxiety and like and wanting to utterly die. alienated. Yeah, 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 for sure. So I get that, and so I understand that there's a lot of people for whom like that setting is just going to push a million kinds of buttons that you don't need. Pu- you know, at a certain point in your life, you don't need to push those buttons anymore. That's the great <laughs> yeah. part about being a grown up. You're a grown ass person. Nobody can make you go to school. And no anime or video game can make you go back to high school. That's 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 your agency now. That's right. Uh, sometimes when I'm having a bad day, I still sort of I, I still have to pause and think, yeah, but you don't have to go to school today. God, yes. Uh, but I think a lot of games are acutely aware of that backstory as well. Like, there's not a lot of games I find that are deeply nostalgic for for high school. Not a lot of shows that are deeply nostalgic for high school. A lot of them also paint it as uh, a really tough, bruising place. Yeah. Um, and I think Life is Strange seems to, from from what little I played, yeah. does that pretty well. There's a lot it of does. nervousness and panic uh, associated with just being caught out in various situations. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, one of your friends is, you know, the entire game is kind of about one of your friends who doesn't fit uh, going under. Yeah. And that's that's a really powerful thing. As far as the, to the question about being at a certain point in life. So I've always been weird. <laughs> I've always been weird. Oh, is, that, is that right, Rob? Yeah. You, have you always been weird? Believe it or not, I've always okay. been weird. Okay. But like, I've always sort of anticipated adulthood and age in some ways. Like... One of my favorite pieces of writing, and I, I, I hit this hit this thing when I was like twelve, mm. uh, was I want to say Joan Didion's "Goodbye to All That," hmm. which is her essay about leaving New York and okay. heading to Los Angeles. But it's really a piece about growing up, like ending early adulthood, 
and realizing that your time on earth is finite and options are going to be limited and doors are going to close to you and you won't have been aware of it. And I'm 12 years old and immediately I'm like, yeah, that's what life (laughs) is going to be like. Immediately I latched onto it. Now the interesting thing is my relationship with that piece has changed. Uh, I read it every couple of years. It's been funny to track my evolving relationship with it. Same way, like you go back and you watch something and you start identifying more with the other character. You know what I mean? Like who you identify with uh, changes. So I've always been someone who maybe sort of looked like is willing to engage with those sort of stories that come from a perspective, like having lived a long while. But I do think, like we just talked, we just talked about it on uh, on Waypoint Radio. I think I bring it up a, a lot here, but a game that I return to all the damn time is uh, The Darkness, which is Hell yeah. sort of about the end of childhood and feelings of regret and failure, knowing that you know it's over and you you kind of messed it up. Yeah, and so that's that's absolutely something that like I hit that just early enough in life where that theme really hit home. Yeah. God, that's... That's a really good pull. I have so many memories that are that are so specific to games that, that helped me through a hard time or that resonated with me because I was having, you know, anxiety, depression, the the usual Danielle stuff <laughs> in my own adolescence. But they didn't they didn't have any specific content that was like hitting at that. It just was that thing that was there for me at that time. I remember playing Perfect Dark uh and loving it because it it gave me a place to be that wasn't my life when I was 16 years old and like this horrible breakup and I thought the world was ending and I didn't sleep for two weeks and like, (laughs) but I played perfect dark and that made me feel okay. Like there's a lot of games that are that for me, but I think it also has to do with the fact that I was very young at a time when games uh, more rarely did this subject matter. Uh, You know, the sort of like, Hey, growing up is hard to do. And, and also, um, you know, getting older is hard to do, not just growing up, but getting older. And now we have hundreds of games that that actually, you know, often much smaller games, you know, it, these themes certainly pop up in, in big budget games now. But like, you know, there's there's a lot of games now about being queer and, and feeling weird. And, and there's a lot of games about all kinds of stuff that would have helped me, I think, a lot and been like an incredible thing for me when I was young and feeling completely like I was the biggest fucking weirdo in the world and everybody would find out if I didn't have like the perfect facade for it. Uh, so like <laughs> I, in, in a way, I guess I'm a little jealous of kids who are growing up in this world. Maybe not this world. Maybe I'm a little jealous of kids who are growing up in the world two years ago. <laughs> and that's, you know, <laughs> in today's media the, environment, let's say. Yeah, exactly. At least having so many resources and so many different creators doing interesting stuff with games that are like actually like a really productive resource for a lot of feelings and that kind of thing. Uh, but this is a really good question and, uh, God, I'm glad, I'm glad Patrick wrote in Patrick Klepek. Thank you for writing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that's probably a good place to, for us to start talking about our weekend project. So, uh, 
Rob, you you watching anything, reading anything uh, especially good? Yeah, so I I talked a, I talked a little about this over the the past uh, the past few weeks, but I actually finally kind of this I'm having this wave of fear that I've actually talked about this but like on the podcast, but okay. to hell with it, we're in it, we're in it, we're just gonna we're in we're it now. Through it. Uh, so I finally like went back and actually sat down and like completed the uncle who works for Nintendo. Like I played a bunch of it, but I never actually like gotten to the like final, final, final ending. Yeah. And I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I think it's, I think what that game, what I find so uncanny about that game is it so brilliantly captures a lot of the anxieties and weird classism that popped up among like nerd friendships like set in the 90s like who has what what systems do they have how many games what kind of tv and there's this weird there's this this entire weird thing that like you thought your family was normal but then you go to someone else's house and maybe they have nicer stuff than you or maybe they don't Mm -hmm. maybe they have like worse stuff and you you felt different or weird about it and like it it was hard to pin down that that game like pins down so many of those anxieties and those feelings and and captures them so brilliantly and then it does so in the service of a a truly eerie and and spooky horror game like I think what I love about it so much is it's not a lot of times nothing is happening, but there are a few moments that are kind of indelible, uh, you know, for, for me when it comes to that game. Like if you walk straight back into the dining room, if it's your first action, basically, yeah. of the night, hanging out with your friend. So the uncle works for Nintendo. You're spending the night at a friend's house. And what you're going to do is you're going to play video games all night long. Of course. And your friend has nicer stuff than you. And she also has, like, she's, like, really taking pride in being, like, the alpha nerd. Like, she's got all the stuff. And she's, yeah. she's better at everything than you. And she's got to sort of rub your nose in it a little bit. And she's a little judgy, um, but in that really offhanded, like, again, everything is normal to kids. And so there's there's kind of this instinctive, like, if you don't have the same expectations or references that your friend has, your shitty friend can be like, oh, that you're just weird. Like, what, what's wrong with yeah, you? Get with it. Yeah. That was the thing to say back in the day. Just so you know. Yeah. It was very mean. It's almost hard to believe you weren't a hit in high school. <laughs> that was that was the I thing. Didn't that say was that. the thing to say in back in the day. That was things Get people said it. to me. Let's be clear. Oh, then they were then then they sound lame, Danielle. They sound yeah, very lame. Well, Those people I agree sucked. with that. People I went to high school with yeah. <laughs> sucked. Not all of them. Some of them were fine. But so you so what happens is after the preliminaries, you're now sort of pinned at her house. Uh, for I think from the hours till six until midnight, and at midnight something real bad happens. Oh uh, yeah! The uncle who works for Nintendo shows up and appears to devour you. Yep. Uh, but if the first action you do is to go back into the dining room where you just had dinner with her family, you stumble across 
her parents frozen in mid-conversation. Yeah. Um, unmoving, unblinking. Like, literally, it's just this, like, creepy, fucked-up tableau <laughs> of these two, like, almost clones who just, like, shut off. Like, you're not around to observe them. And so the simulation just ends. They stop being oh, so humans and things. Yeah. And there's a lot of moments like that through this game as, like, what you take to be, like, real and concrete begins to crumble apart. And you have to go through it again and again and again until you start finding the limits of the simulation. But the thing I love, the thing that's so satisfying is your way out to an extent is to remember uh, things from playthrough to playthrough and figure out what the inconsistencies are in what you are being shown and calling attention to them. And the more you start calling attention to them, uh, the more you start to figure out about what is happening to you. Uh, but I just love it. Cause like for the first, for the first like part of the game, it's absolutely trying to gaslight you every turn. Yeah. Like you think you know something, but then you don't. Descriptions change. Uh, like the truth sort of melts away from you. It's really, really cool. Uh, and what I really love is at the end, you unlock the author's notes. And it's from Michael Lutz. And there's this one passage in the, in the author's notes, sort of the inspiration for... Uh, for for the game or one of the inspirations he has this great note where he talks about the character models for like link and mario oh, yeah. and this uncomfortable feeling he had that on some level those characters hated you oh my god and it's so fucked up and creepy but at the same time we know exactly what he's what he means yeah like absolutely there's something inviting and warm and cheerful and kind of joyless and alien and manipulative about those characters too, at times, like looked at in a certain light and what they represented. Um, and I just, I, I utterly love that. I, I love how, like, it's very easy to get caught up in like nerd nostalgia, 90s kid nostalgia. Man, the uncle who works for Nintendo just just cuts that, uh, like, you know, cuts, cuts that like a knife, like, like a stiff drink. It's great. God, yeah. I, I remember having a lot of anxiety over like, what if those characters really fucking hated you because you sucked at the game and they died all the time? Like you're putting them through hell. Like you're putting them through all this pain. They're sitting there in that machine and they want you to die. Like, God, I just remember feeling so like anxious about that as a really little kid at some point. And it wasn't like a specific thing. I'm now giving voice to this specific anxiety, but I remember that like, oh, yeah, it's so good. Oh, well, I guess to, to also talk about something I've talked about a little bit before. <laughs> I, I have complicated feelings now about Caprica. Uh, I, I, I think the show gets a lot better as it reaches the end of its first season. And it's I still don't season, think correct? it's only season. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I still feel like, I, I still think it shits the bed on religion and the sort of religious aspects of the show. Because it just feels so surface level and corny and cheesy when it's coming to, like, actually sort of discussing religion. It's like, well, there's religion and there's religious terrorists and, yep. It still feels so surface level and it, and it drives me nuts. But the storylines with uh, the sort of avatar 
of the of the girl who was killed in this sort of pilot episode who who becomes sort of the precursor to Cylon intelligence. She's sort of like a hyper advanced avatar who uh the real life daughter of this genius asshole scientist, you know. Uh, she herself is the real genius who developed this avatar that has so many aspects of her personality, and she lives on through this weird, uh, like, sort of VR video game thing. Uh, that storyline goes to some fascinating places. And the storyline with the, uh, the sort of Adamas themselves, I mean, they're all sort of related and everything, but the backstory of the Adamas and their family and sort of what they fought for actually has the appropriate weight, I think, thrown behind it. Um, and it's like a very Godfather kind of storyline, actually. They're they're in this sort of Toron mob, uh, mafia, I guess, not mob. Uh, oh, I think of mob and mafia as being similar things because I'm from Rhode Island, of course. But like, it, it, they're in this mafia and, and uh, Adama, you know, Adama Adama, uh, his father is this lawyer who works for the Guatra. And and that's, you know, that's the godfather, yeah. of course. And he's involved with the genius scientist guy who invented Cylons and whose daughter and basically invented real AI and, and all of this other stuff is going on. And it actually became becomes this, this show that has like a police procedural going on, a godfather story going on, a uh, shitty and not great religious terrorist story that like I could give two shits about but going also on, but it does. Rise of deadly AI. And yeah. 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 Also the rise of deadly AI. And also the fact that it's like, it's a teenage girl who's AI. Like she's the real one genius behind the whole thing. Like that's, that's kind a genre of cool. mashup I'm into. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, one large chunk of this story is utter shit. I think honestly, but the rest of it actually comes around so well and so interestingly, at least, that is making up for the, you know, there's there's yeah. a little loose in the caboose or whatever. But, <laughs> like, the rest of it's actually really working for me. The rest of the train is actually chugging along. Yeah. And I'm here in, like, the second to last episode now. And I'm kind of like, oh, shit, I really care now. <laughs> now I really want to know what happens. Whereas... In like the first few episodes, I was interested in in the pilot because the pilot yeah. sets up all of these storylines, and then it goes so hard with the religious stuff, and I rolled my eyes to the back of my head ten times and was sort of watching it while playing Zelda and just kind of like is that because it's like working really hard to set up the Battlestar stuff where it's like oh where did the is. religious purpose exactly. of the silence come from which which I talked about last week of being I thought the weakest part of Battlestar by far yeah. and it's you know it's. Well, What's if the you're going to say something grace, has a plan like, <laughs> at the start of every episode, it better have a plan. Ugh. They had no plan. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I really hate that. Like, it's it's fine if you had no plan. You know what? That's fine. Do amazing writing, and I'll be happy, and I will show the fuck up. But if you do shit writing in the service of a plan that makes no sense, I'm going to be mad, guys. Yeah. you be a little mad. Yeah, not cool. Not cool. <laughs> Um, so we're almost done with Caprica and we're actually going to be watching Blood and Chrome, the sort of mini series. Mm. Uh, that's the, the, the continuous, uh, prequel portion. That's like bef right before battle starts with a young Adama. He's like a Lieutenant or something, I think, uh, yeah, and I fighting the first Cylon war. In my head that's tied up with Battlestar Galactica Razor as well, but I can't I, It might why. be. Yeah. It was I all Razor around is... season three and. Yeah. yeah. Razor was its own kind of fascinating thing. I liked Razor. I thought that was pretty cool. Although I actually haven't, I don't, 
I saw Razor in theaters and then later on saw Battle like the full series of Battlestar Galactica, like, you know, the whole thing, but without yeah. Razor. So I weirdly have older memories of Razor than most of that show. Uh, which is a little bizarre. But anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think Caprica at least does a three-quarter turn. And uh, I, I, God, I, I almost find myself kind of wishing it had a little longer to go so it could, you know, maybe develop some of these really interesting storylines. Actually wrap part. it up. That's the tragedy yeah. of canceled shows. I know. Well, I'm going to watch the last episode tonight and I'll uh, probably have, you know, maybe I'll report back someday <laughs> again on Caprica. But... But I, I, I'm not walking back anything I said about the religious stuff. It, it still sucks, but it, at least the other stuff really did step up uh, to, to mitigate that somewhat, at least. So, uh, yeah, that's my Caprica report. Uh, the hot new, hot new property, <laughs> Caprica. Good, good stuff. Uh, and I think on that note, on that hot note, uh, that it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. So this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by yours truly and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. Keep up with the latest from us. Follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. We really do appreciate you spending a little time with us in your earbuds. Uh, so if you could go ahead and rate us on iTunes and tell your friends, tell your Cylon buddies, tell your advanced AI, tell your weird religious friends that aren't very well developed uh, in the plot uh, tell your uncle that works in nintendo tell whoever that you think might enjoy idle weekend about us because word of mouth really does help us and it really is appreciated we really do appreciate it so for rob zachney this is danielle riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends <laughs>